Gracious God, we thank you for the many ways you have blessed us. As we return a portion of what is truly yours, we pray that you would bless it, use it to spread your love throughout this community and the world. This we pray. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's scripture. Good morning. It's good to be back. My name is Mike Osborne, and I bring you greetings from uh, your friends at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, where I am the dean of students. And it's uh, good to be back, though I wish your pastor were healthy again. He called me the other day and said, I'm still not totally well. Can you fill in for me? And I was so happy to be back here with you all. So, hello. Good morning. I'd like to read for you 1 Samuel 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and later we will look at the rest, some of the rest of the chapter. But for now, listen to God's Word, 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 7. When Saul, that is King Saul, king of Israel, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. I want to add one more verse from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 which says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would come and do for us what no human being can do, which is to not only make clear what this passage is all about, but also change our hearts and cause us to become more and more like Jesus Christ as a result of your Spirit working in and through the Word of God. Father, we are here. We want to hear from you. We want to know your truth. We want to be changed. We want to be more like Jesus. So use this next 30 to 40 minutes in our lives to conform us into his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This uh, story from the life of David, it's quite vivid, right? Quite graphic. You can, you can really see the action of 
this passage. But this passage is also very personal for me. Because there is a situation, I won't need to go into detail, but there is a situation in my life right now in which I'm finding it hard to forgive. I don't want to forgive. I want to punish. And perhaps you could admit the same. Think about someone who has wounded you. Think about a situation in which you've been disappointed, in which you've been hurt. Hurts, it hurts. Perhaps even in your heart, like there is in mine, a desire for vengeance, a desire to get even, a desire to inflict pain rather than absorb pain. Well, you have basically three options when someone has hurt you. One option is to try to forget about it and hope it goes away. I'm not succeeding in that very well. I don't know about you. Another option is to take it out on somebody, the person who hurt you, your spouse perhaps, your child maybe, your dog, your kids, yourself. Only option three really works. You can forgive that person. By God's grace, you can forgive. So we're going to talk today about forgiveness and how to do it and what it looks like. But before I dive into this text with you, let me start off with a pastoral observation, if I may. Forgiving someone is not simple. I can't offer you this morning an easy three-step formula forgiveness for forgiveness or some technique that you can just plug and play. Forgiving someone is not simple. Every situation is different. I find that when people hear sermons on forgiveness, they often want five steps or a simple strategy that works every time. But there is no such thing. Forgiveness can be messy. If you've been hurt, if you've tried to go through a process of reconciling with someone who offended you, you know it's often messy. It's not easy. It's not a magic wand that makes pain suddenly disappear. You have to work at it. It's often a process. And sometimes there are other things that need to happen besides forgiveness in order to reach the goal of reconciliation, which is so glorifying to the Lord. For example, you may need to confront the one who hurt you many times. You may need to get counseling to help you work through the effects of the pain. You may need to get church leaders involved. Perhaps church discipline might have to be considered eventually. You may need to establish boundaries to protect yourself from further pain and wounds. In extreme cases, like abuse, for example, you may need to take legal action against the offender. So there's no cheap version of forgiveness, and sometimes a cheap version can be an escape from these other steps that we need to take in order to be truly reconciled with our fellow man. So don't forget these caveats, these preconditions, these comments about forgiveness as we move through our study this morning. So having said those things, I want to start off with two big ideas from this text, the 1 Samuel text. 
Two big ideas, and after that, I'll give you some practical guidance on how to forgive. So let's dive into big idea number one. Big idea number one is that forgiveness often looks so foolish that most people don't do it. Forgiveness often looks so foolish, so outlandish, so ridiculous that a lot of people don't do it. This is in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Samuel 24. Now, as you may know, as we get into this text this morning, David's problems with King Saul began back in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel when David killed Goliath. King Saul became insanely jealous of David and he tried to kill him several times. And when we come here to chapter 24, David is a fugitive. He's on the run trying to stay away from jealous King Saul. It says in verse 1 of our text that when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took these 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. So David is running away from Saul, and Saul is coming close to where David is. And David is terribly outnumbered. David has, if you know the previous chapter's details, David has about 600 men on his side. And Saul has 3,000. So that's a five-to-one advantage for King Saul. And now when we come to chapter 24, David and his men are hiding out in the desert of En Gedi. Now that's an area on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And it's filled with springs and steep, rocky crags and caves. So verse 3 tells us that something very fortuitous happened. David and some of his men were in this one particular cave, way back in the back, resting, we might assume. It's nice and cool and cozy back there. So David and some of his 600 men are way back there in the back of this dark, cool cave. When Saul came into that very cave to use the restroom, they didn't have porta-potties back then. And so... When you gotta go, you gotta go. The Bible's a pretty honest book, right? Saul comes into this very cave, the same one David and these men are back in, hiding in. Now, just to be fair to the text, the Hebrew phrase for relieve himself is actually cover his feet. Cover his feet. So some scholars think that Saul is taking a nap. Who knows? But whatever the case, he's very vulnerable. And David is right there with his men. And David's men conclude that God in his providence has brought Saul into that cave for the purpose of David taking him out. I mean, he's been chasing David around unjustly. So here comes Saul. Wouldn't you kind of think that, well, look what God has orchestrated here. Saul is right here in front of me, doesn't even know I'm here. Saul is vulnerable, as I said. So David's men whisper to him in verse 4, David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand. Come on, David, he's all yours. He's got it coming. Kill him. It makes sense, right? 
Because to forgive Saul, to let him off the hook, would be foolish. Absolutely foolish. The man's no good, David, we might say to him. He's already tried to kill you several times. Saul is a disobedient and narcissistic king. God has already rejected him and you've been anointed as the next king of Israel. So it's your time. This is the means through which you can take the throne. But David doesn't do it. He spares Saul instead of killing him. And we say, David, what are you thinking? Uh, I saw a bumper sticker recently that said, to err is human, to forgive is out of the question. (laughs) Well, that's kind of the philosophy that these men have. To err is human, but to forgive, it's out of the question. I'm I'm reminded of the time in Matthew 18, pretty familiar, when Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times? Give me a number. How many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? I mean, wouldn't that be extravagant? Wouldn't that be gracious? And Jesus says, I tell you, not seven, but 77 times. And isn't there a little voice inside of us that says, that's nuts. That makes no sense. If I keep on forgiving this person, she's just going to take advantage of me. If I let this person get off scot-free, he's never going to learn his lesson, right? But that's the thing about forgiveness. There's a foolishness to it, we might say. It doesn't make sense to the world. In that sense, there's a foolishness to forgiveness. And that's why many people in the world never try it. So that's big idea number one. Here's big idea number two. I said there are two of them. In this passage, big idea number two, not only is forgiveness foolish, you might say, but forgiveness is so freeing that you're the fool if you don't do it. Forgiveness is so freeing that you're the fool if you don't do it, if you don't forgive. Let me read what happens next. I said that we'd look at some of the rest of this chapter. Let's pick up the reading in verse 8 and find out what happened. So David's men say, take him out, David. You've got a chance. This is your golden opportunity. But instead of that, David uh, doesn't do that, and he lets Saul go on his way. So verse 8 says, Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, 
but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I hope you feel what is going on here and how free David is after his act of letting Saul go. He is free. For one thing, his conscience is clear. He doesn't have Saul's blood on his hands. He didn't kill the Lord's anointed, that is, the king of Israel. But also, he's literally free, at least for a while. In verse 22, the last verse of this chapter, it says that Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So, for the time being, David really is free of Saul's uh, ire. Now, if you know the rest of the story in 1 Samuel, you know that Saul's remorse is short-lived. But for the time being, David can relax. He can come out of hiding. See, by giving Saul the gift of forgiveness, letting him go, David doesn't have to live with a condemning conscience. He did the right thing. He is at rest. He's at peace with himself and with others. Albert Hayes was a Catholic priest who said this, It takes a lot of energy to keep a wound open, to keep a grudge alive. The longer I allow a wound to fester, the more bitterness, anger, and self-pity poison my blood and eat at my heart. Not long ago, my wife and I babysat our grandchildren, some of our grandchildren up in Jacksonville. And two of our grandkids up there are two boys named Lincoln and Ransom. Lincoln is nine and Ransom is five. And they share the same space. They live, they sleep in the same bedroom, right? So you can imagine there are a lot of things that go on between these two boys because they share the same space. Well, Lincoln loves Legos. He loves Legos. And he's got tons of different Lego creations in this bedroom. Well, Ransom uh, messed one of them up. I mean, he completely wrecked it. And Lincoln freaked out. I mean, he just flipped out and went crazy because of what his brother had done. But Ransom just went out of the room. He just left. And Lincoln, meanwhile, collapsed in a pile of tears and anger and rage, and he wouldn't let it go. It just spiraled out of control for hours and hours. So not only was his Lego spaceship broken, but he was bitter toward his brother on top of that. See, that's the way unforgiveness works. Someone hurts you and you get mad and bitter and angry about it, and as long as you hold on to it, it just hurts you. Right? So now your pain has multiplied. You're hurt from the offense, and on top of that, bitterness is eating away at you. Meanwhile, the person who hurt you walks away. He's recovering while you're in a pile. How do you get free of that? How do you get free of that bitter spirit and that spiraling out of control anger when you've been wounded? You forgive. You forgive. You get free through forgiveness. 
Okay, those are the two big ideas. Forgiveness may look foolish, but it's freeing. But now we need to answer the question, how? I suspect some of you are asking that question. But how do I do this? Mike, I do struggle with that. I do have this bitter spirit. I've been hurt, and I don't know what to do. So let me show you four things from this passage that we've looked at in 1 Samuel 24 on how to forgive the person who wounded you. Four things, I think, are taught in this chapter. Number one, in order to forgive somebody who wounded you, you must first take a deep inward look at your own heart. Take a deep inward look. Notice verse 5 with me. 1 Samuel 24, 5. It says, David's heart struck him. That's such an important verse right there. David's heart struck him. Another translation says, David was conscience stricken. He felt guilty. Why? Well, it's because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He dared to challenge the dignity of the office of the king of Israel. And he'd come that close to taking Saul's life and thereby touching the Lord's anointed. Though Saul was a wicked man, God had raised him up and anointed him to be the king. That's who he is. That's his office. And David had come that close to taking him out and killing him. And he looked into his own heart and saw the potential for that. He looked into his own heart and saw the seeds of sin. And David felt deep, deep conviction over what that deep inward look told him about himself. You see, David cared more about his own character and integrity than he did about the unjust treatment he was getting from King Saul. Matthew Henry, who wrote big commentary on the whole Bible, said something I thought was very interesting about that story. He said, it is a good thing to have a heart within us smiting us for sins that seem little. It is a sign that conscience is awake and tender and will be the means of preventing greater sins. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's good. It's good to feel the conviction of even little little transgressions of God's law because that feeling of conviction will keep you from sinning more greatly. What we see here in David is genuine humility. It's genuine humility given to him by God. Notice what he says about himself in verse 14. Did you, did you catch that? He says, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue, Saul? After a dead dog, a flea. He says, I'm just a flea. I'm a, I'm a dead dog. I'm com- comparable to a dead dog compared to you. I'm just a flea. See, if you're having trouble forgiving somebody, do you know why? Do you know why it could be? It could be because you don't know your own heart and how susceptible to sin you are. It could be that you have not taken that deep look within yourself and seen your own culpability like David did here. You would have never hurt somebody the way that person hurt you, right? Am I right? Is that how you think sometimes? It's certainly how I think sometimes. I would never do that. You're above that type of thing, right? I'm above that, we say. Yeah, right. No, the truth is you and I are just like David. 
We are a flea. That means we are lowly. We are susceptible to sin. We are tempted easily. We commit things. We're quite capable of doing the same thing that people have done to us and worse. In fact, some of us have done things that are worse than what people have done to us. See, one reason that we resist forgiveness is not because we've been hurt so badly. And this is, this is a hard truth to understand and to, and to believe. It's because we have this powerful need to justify ourselves. And when someone sins against us or messes up or falls or slips or makes a mistake, that gives our sinful nature an opportunity to revel in our own superiority over that person. It feeds our desire for self-glory. And if you don't recognize the need that you have for self-glory, you don't know your own heart very well. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Why? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own? In other words, for every one look at someone else's sin, we ought to take ten looks at our own. I love this about David. This chapter about David. I love this part of his story. He wasn't perfect. We know that. He had flaws. He messed up real bad a little bit later, right? But he was humble. He knew himself well. He had a sensitive conscience about his own sin. He wasn't afraid to look at the plank in his own eye. Those dark places that often cause us to sin against others. So step one, if you really do want to forgive that person who's hurt you, if I really want to forgive this person that I want to punish, we have to do this hard work of taking a look at our own hearts. Step two, in order to forgive, not only take this inward look, but acknowledge the pain that you have experienced. Acknowledging your pain is actually an important step forward in the process of forgiving someone else. Look with me at verse 11. In in verse 11, uh, David is saying, There is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, Saul, though you hunt my life to take it. You see how honest David is being? He is confronting his offender. You've done this, Saul. You're hunting my life for no reason. And I don't like it. I ask you to stop. (laughs) See, sometimes we short-circuit the forgiveness process by saying something like, "Uh, it's okay, really. It's not that big a deal. Or we release people from the seriousness of what they've done to us by saying, well, that's just the way he is. Have you ever said that about somebody? That's just the way she is. And so we let them off the hook easy like that. It's okay, we say. No, listen, it is a big deal. It is a big deal when you have been hurt. That's not just the way they are. That's not a a good way to deal with your pain. You first have to agree that you've been hurt. Tell God that you've been hurt. And if possible, tell the offender that you've been hurt. Now, this is hard work, just like the first step was. Uh, Many times we'd rather keep the pain inside, right, and push it down than bring it up and feel it all over again. We certainly, most of us, don't like confrontation, 
and speaking truth to someone else. We'd rather paste on a smile or say some nice Christian cliche than speak truth and cry and make somebody else feel bad. But recovery begins with honesty. David says, honestly, I have not wronged you, Saul, but you are hunting me down. So, second step, uh, acknowledge what's the truth of the situation to yourself and possibly to others. Step three, in order to forgive. This is where we get to the, to the actual step of canceling the debt. Canceling the debt and letting the person who hurt you go. Letting him or her go. That is, you eventually have to come to the place where you say, I forgive you. I will not hold this over you any longer. I am setting you free from my sentence of judgment and condemnation. Verse 7 is where we see this. It says that David persuaded his men and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. David let him go. And that's eventually where we have to get to if we want to get through the forgiveness process. We have to get to the place where we say, I'm canceling your debt. You don't owe that to me any longer. I will not hold it over you anymore. I ran into this quote somewhere along the way that says, Forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you for, for, for hurting me. Listen, Saul is a very bad man. We've seen that already. He is a bad man. He had tried on several occasions to kill David. He had been hunting David down like a criminal. Uh, he'd been spreading bad reports and false rumors about David to other people. And one thing you may not know is that a few chapters before this, Saul was responsible for the death of perhaps hundreds of people in the town of Nob, all because of his hatred for David. So he's got a pretty bad record. But David makes a decision. And the decision is he refuses to repay evil with evil. He overcomes evil with good, as we read earlier from the book of Romans. He lets Saul off the hook. And notice some of the ways that we see this in this chapter. He calls Saul his Lord. That's little L, not capital L. He calls Saul his Lord. He calls him his father in verse 11. He calls him the Lord's anointed in verse 10. In verse 8, he bows before Saul and pays homage to the king. Some scholars believe that what that means is that David actually is lying down, face down on the ground as a show of respect and humility to this man, this bad man who has hurt him so unfairly. And did you notice in verse 9 that David even comes up with an excuse for Saul? He says uh, in verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, David seeks your harm? Surely it's their fault, in other words, David is saying. It's not your fault that you're doing this to me, Saul. He, see, he's giving him an out. He's saying it's due to false intelligence that you've been given. If you had the right knowledge of me, you wouldn't be following me or hunting me down. 
And so he's, he's really giving an excuse for Saul's evil behavior. I know you didn't mean it, in other, would be another way of saying it. And perhaps you've said that to a friend one time who hurt you. I know you didn't mean it. You're doing the same thing, see, that David is doing here for, for Saul. It's making that decision to let someone off the hook. And so finally he says in verse 13, My hand shall not be against you, Saul. He let him go. Now, listen, let's think through this a bit more. When you, get, when you forgive someone like we've seen in this chapter, what happens to the pain you've experienced? Does it just, poof, disappear? Uh, probably not. No, when, see, when you forgive, you absorb in yourself the pain of the offense. You invite the pain into your own heart and you absorb it yourself. You might think of the story in Matthew 18. Remember the story? It says Jesus is telling a story here and he tells a story about a man who owed a king 10,000 talents of gold, which is an exorbitant amount of money, millions upon millions of dollars. This man owes the king, but he wasn't able to pay. And so he comes to the king and he falls on his knees and he says, Be patient with me, O king, and I'll pay it back. Well, that's a ridiculous uh, claim. But be, be merciful to me, O king, I'll pay it back. And it says in the story that the king took pity on him. Cancel the debt and let him go. So the man didn't owe the king anything anymore. But what did it cost the king? To do that for the man. Millions upon millions of dollars. The king absorbed in himself the debt that this man owed him. And he paid it himself so that that man didn't have to. See, there's always a cost to forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, it says in Hebrews 9. So there's always a cost, always something to pay when someone sins against someone else. And forgiveness is canceling the debt that someone owes you when they have hurt you. The hurt doesn't just go away. You shed your own blood, you might say. You absorb the pain into yourself instead of exacting it upon the offender. And you may have to keep canceling the debt again and again, over and over again. In other words, the heartache and the loss that you've experienced may come back into your consciousness again and again for weeks, for months, for years perhaps. And when that happens, what do you do? You cancel the debt again. You absorb the pain again. You forgive 77 times, according to Jesus' story. Every time you want to treat that person like a voodoo doll and stick a pin in him, you refuse to do it. You pay the debt yourself. Every time you want to sneak a bad report about that person into a conversation, you keep your mouth shut. You swallow it and pay the debt yourself. Every time you want to hope that something bad happens to her, you pray a little prayer of blessing for her instead and pay the debt yourself. These are ways that you shed your own blood when you've been hurt and wounded by others instead of taking their blood. That's what forgiveness is. But I can hear someone 
out here saying, and I've said it myself, but, but what about justice, Mike? It's, this doesn't sound like justice to me. If I just cancel the debt, will I ever get vindicated? Will the wrongdoer ever get his or her due? The short answer to that is yes. You will get vindicated and he or she will get his or her due. What do you do in the meantime? You trust in God. That's the fourth thing necessary in the act of forgiveness You trust in God and in His future vindication. Notice what David says in verse 12. This is beautifully played out here in this story. Verse 12, where David says, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Listen to me, folks. God cares deeply about justice. God cares deeply about justice. I think of those of you in the room who have been severely wounded. I suspect, I do not doubt for a moment, there is a parent in the room who has been terribly hurt by a child. I suspect there is a man or a woman in here who has been severely wounded by a spouse. And there are other situations too many to even recount. I want you to know there is coming a day. There is coming a day when God will make all wrongs right. There is coming a day when, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.6, God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. You who have been wounded, abused, rejected, abandoned. God will pay back those who have hurt you that way. And He will give relief to you who have been troubled. I think it was Tim Keller who said, But if you try to get justice before forgiving someone, you're not going for justice, you're going for vengeance. However, if you will place your trust in God and in His future vindication, and wait, wait upon His timing, He will see to it that you are vindicated and the one who hurt you punished. Unless, of course, the one who hurt you repents and trusts in Christ. Because you see, Jesus did something that can cancel anyone's debt, no matter how large it is. Jesus on the cross absorbed in himself the sins and the crimes of every single person who turns from sin and trusts in him. Jesus Christ did something so foolish, you might say, that angels were amazed. He overcame evil with good. He left heaven became a man, lived the perfect life that you and I are supposed to live, died the death that we deserve to die, shed His blood so we wouldn't have to, paid the debt so we wouldn't have to. You remember what He said from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus prayed for you and me on the cross, and He forgave us of our many, many sins. 
And He says to every single person who repents and trusts in Him, go free. You are free. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer guilty. Your debts are fully paid. You owed an infinite debt to God because of your sin. Yet it's been canceled through the blood of Christ. Now go, he says. Now go. Cancel other people's debts. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Overcome evil with good. And don't be surprised if you find that the person that you have set free is you. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a heavy, heavy subject. People in the room, many, perhaps some, have carried a wound with them for a long time. And they know exactly what I mean when I say absorb the pain yourself. I pray for those who are still canceling debts. The debt of abuse, the debt of abandonment, the debt of uh, rejection. Lord, please give them the grace of patience. Help them to know that a day is coming when they will find utter perfect relief. And for others who are still struggling with the desire for punishment and vengeance, Lord, would you please help us to remember what Jesus did for us, that on the cross he canceled our debt. Help us, O oh God, to continually, with your Spirit's help, strive to go through this process of forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our service.